0: Well, good morning once more here on this third Sunday of Advent. It's excellent to be together. Um, We have finished working through 1 John, and we certainly are going to work through 2nd and 3rd John. But before that, I wanted to pause and work through two Advent slash Christmas sermons in this week and the next most of us are very familiar with the christmas story in fact i would imagine that the christmas story is the most well known story of the whole bible because you don't everyone who's not a christian knows what you know christmas is supposed to designate even if they don't celebrate it that way but there's a reason that things like the season of advent and christmas and christmas and easter recur on the church calendar why is that Why on the liturgical, the the, the ecclesiastical calendar do, do these things recur? Well, it's because of their abiding importance in the life of the church. And it's of abiding importance in the life of the church because of how it's related and informs the gospel upon which the church itself stands and the church proclaims. And so there is this odd phenomenon of needing to be reminded of things we know so well sometimes we need to be reminded of things that we know so well not because of <coughs> excuse me not because of fragmentary remembrance but because when you hear things when you hear stories so many times they can tend to become little more than slogans tired narratives and so our regular return to these things is not, much, is not so much to give you that one critical insight that's going to revolutionize everything you know about the story, but rather to rouse us from our familiarity. It's not so much to develop a new theology as it is to awaken us to the reality that the way we view history, and in one sense even time itself, is very different than the outside world. It's not so much to correct misunderstandings as it is to emphasize that what we eagerly long for during Advent and celebrated Christmas is drastically different than the culture around us. And so, with that in mind, I'd like to present a collage of the coming Messiah by briskly, but hopefully meaningfully, working through a handful of texts in the prophets that outline. The very coming that was expected. So as we walk out of here, we'll have a picture of the coming king that will help us feel the sense of longing that is embedded in Advent. We want to feel the longing of faithful Israelites waiting for the promises to come true ahead of next week's sermon, which is not the one who is coming, but the one who has come. The king who has come. I want to keep one principle in mind, and that is the greater our longing, the greater our celebration. The greater we long for something, period, the greater we celebrate that thing when it comes to fruition, when it comes to pass. So if that's the case, it would behoove us to develop our sense of longing in this Advent season. So we are going to get your pages, or excuse me, get your fingers ready to turn the pages, or if you're a phone, Bible, or get ready to scroll or something. Because we are going to take a tour. A tour primarily in Isaiah, but we're going to go to the book of Micah as well. The one who is coming, let's start in Isaiah chapter 9. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that this, the context of this prophecy is on the heels of an, the impending Assyrian invasion, that is, of the northern kingdom, And this is a word of comfort which would have been desperately needed. In fact, if I read the last part of chapter 8, you'll see that uh, things look fairly bleak. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and then when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, They will be thrust into thick darkness. Whoa! That's rough. That's rough right there. But that's when we read chapter 9. Something amazing is going to happen that's going to provide hope in the darkness that we just read about. But there will be no gloom, verse 1 of chapter 9, for her who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Northern kingdom represented here. Remember, the Assyria, Assyria took the northern kingdom into exile, represented by Zebulun and Naphtali in the north. And after they experience judgment, they are going to be made glorious. Now, it's not going to end there, but that's where it's going to start. This Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, was land that was claimed by Israel, but it was, it's about as, and you look on a map, it's about as north as you can possibly get. And it was populated by many Gentiles. And there was disputes over whose it really was and so on and so forth. An extremely unlikely place for any glorious thing to happen for God's people, candidly. But perhaps an implicit indicator of where it will all end. Because this light that pierces the darkness is not just going to be for those in Jerusalem, nor for those who count as Israel more generally, but for the nations. But these who were in darkness, verse 2... Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness that we read about in chapter eight, on them light has shown. So there is, there's all right, so that's the picture: people in darkness, the darkness of gloom and anguish, there is going there's a light coming that is going to pierce the darkness and begin to undo what has been done. And we see the fruit of that in verses three through five. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before You as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Joy and peace is coming, but it's not coming by conquest. It's not coming by conquest, as Israel's past efforts have been. Conquest, reconquest. That reference to broken as on the day of Midian there in verse 4 is almost certainly a reference to God's triumphs over the Midianites through a guy named Gideon. Through a guy named Gideon. In Judges chapter 7, Well, if, you'll, if you recall that story, it is not skill or tenacity or brute force that defeats the Midianites. Instead, a bit comically, it is trumpets and jars that are smashed and torches and yelling that wins the, the battle. And the idea is that the victory is the Lord's. The Lord is going to do this right here. The Lord is going to do this. Yahweh, the every boot... Uh, that every boot and tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled into blood will be burned as fuel for a fire. This This is the imagery of items of war and items that have been stained by war will be discarded. They'll be no longer needed. They'll be no longer needed because of what's coming. But how does it come? We haven't heard exactly. We heard what's coming, but Isaiah gives us the how on the back end, doesn't he? verse 6 for for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace there's someone coming but this someone is going to be God. Now, because we've heard this story so many times, it's like, yeah, of course it is, but but to an Israelite, the idea that there's a man coming and he's going to be God, I mean uh, and not only that, he's going to be born. his child is born. Especially reading the prophets. You'd be very reasonable to think that God was going to thunder down. I mean maybe, okay, God comes. He's going to thunder down. Chariots of fire. It's not what happened. He's going to be born. And yet, it is unmistakably clear. He will be God of God. And he will be king of kings. Wonderful counselor. Prince of peace. This is no ordinary man. This is no mere man who's coming. He says, of this man, he says, of the increase of his government, verse 7, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I just gave myself a bath. Sorry about that. He will rule a kingdom of peace by taking the government on his shoulders. The The ruling duties upon himself. And he will do that directly downstream from Israel's greatest monarch. David. Whose throne He will sit on. He will establish it. This, the One who is coming will sustain it. Unlike David, he, hey, things didn't go well there. Things, he will sustain this. He will sit on this throne and He will sustain it. He will sustain this office that executes justice and righteousness that we so often hear about Israel's leaders needing to execute and do. But they don't do it, sadly. This is a rule that will last forever, and like in the case of Gideon's victory, it will be accomplished by the Lord. So let me just give this one little snippet of practical application. There is no imperative for anyone to go bring about this kingdom themselves. You see that anywhere there? You see you and I in there doing anything, getting the job done? You don't see it. We need to bring in the kingdom by ourselves doing X, Y, and Z. Or by taking back what has been advocated to, whatever. It is the zeal of the Lord that is going to do this. He is going to accomplish this kind of rule and government. This God-man who's coming will have the government on his shoulders. And the picture is not people taking up war and combat, It is that these items are discarded as Christ is the one who has the government on his shoulders. This Messiah and himself is the one that brings in a peace that lasts forever. It's the first picture we get. A mighty God is coming. A mighty God is coming. The second portrait. A good shepherd. Turn over with me a couple of chapters to the book of Micah. You're going to have Daniel. You're going to have the rest of the majors you're going to have Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, and then you're going to have Micah. Micah chapter 5. Let me actually point out first that if you back up to chapter 4, to get a little bit of the context, you're going to see in the verse 1 of chapter 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So it's proclaiming something about the future relative to where Micah's at. You see that recur again in verse 6. In that day, recalling the same time period. And you'll understand still that the nations are assembled around them. Verse 11. Chapter 5, and it's not clear whether the first part of chapter 5 sure seems to me... That the first verse of chapter 5 is actually the end of chapter 4. But either, however, you cut it up, we read this Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Apparent section break. But, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little. To be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time. When she who is in labor has given birth. This second well-known passage, again, is also in the context of opposition from the nations. This time, it's not Assyria coming from the north. It's Babylon coming from the southern kingdom. The impending Babylonian captivity. But we get this but. And the idea is this. Out of this tiny little insignificant town. Now, it's not insignificant to us because we understand Bethlehem and the Christmas story. But to them, it would have been. It was true that it was a city David was born in, but it wasn't the city that he ruled in. Okay, The fact that he was born in Bethlehem adds to the bizarre nature of the fact that he ends up being their greatest king. That's an important part of the story. But it's this insignificant little town that is not even mentioned in the territorial allotment of Joshua 15 or Nehemiah chapter 11 for Judah. It's not even in there. That's what he's saying. You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This tiny little insignificant town. But out of this town, there would emerge a ruler whose coming forth have been from days of old. And again, you just have to understand how bizarre this seems. If You're an Israelite waiting for a warrior king to say there's going to be some guy who comes out of Bethlehem. I mean, it'd be like... It's not, not, not even really exactly like it. It would be like having a, a president of the United States sworn in in the, in the boondocks or something. And, and saying, oh, there's someone who's going to come from, I don't know, something that, that, that had no pedigree that anyone would initially discern based off location. And so when we say that someone comes from humble roots, being born in Bethlehem, and then especially coming out of Nazareth, Definitely fits that bill. And yet, Bethlehem, the house of bread, is where the bread of life is going to be born. There is a ruler coming. The people of God, critically, would be given up to the nations until this time. Do you see that language? He shall give them up until the time. People are going to be going to give it up to the nations. Where a woman will labor, a woman will go into labor and bring a child into the world. Now notice, the last time we hear about labor is actually in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Look back at chapter 4, 9 and 10. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued after you have been given up. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. The first labor pains mentioned here are the pains of divine affliction of the daughter of Zion. The second labor pains of chapter 5 brings forth the king of Zion himself. And as a result, the flock will dwell in peace even to the ends of the earth. He will be a good shepherd. He will be a great shepherd. Hebrews 13. And unlike the badly compromised priests and kings before the exile. He will be characterized by the strength of the Lord. And the very majesty of God himself. That's who's coming. A good shepherd. That's the second picture. Third picture is back in Isaiah. And it was our second, um, uh, excuse me, yes, our second scripture reading. And that is a representative sufferer. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52. In Isaiah, there's a very thick concept, you might say, of the servant. The servant. For example, in Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, we hear, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And I'll just stop there because the point here is that the servant is Israel. But you, Israel, my servant. Same thing is repeated in Isaiah 44, verses 1-2. But the servant isn't always cast in great light. For example, in Isaiah 42, 18 and 19. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? The Lord's servant is supposed to be a witness to the nation, supposed to be a witness to the people. But they can't see themselves. They can't see themselves. But then at other times, the servant seems to be not Israel, but it seems to be someone who acts on behalf of Israel. Distinct from Israel. For example, the earlier part of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up a voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So here, the servant is not pictured as Israel. It's pictured, to all appearances, as someone who's acting on behalf of Israel. And there's not a clearer example than Isaiah fifty-two, thirteen through the end of 53. We've already heard this read. I don't want to read through the entire thing again. But I do want to point out a few things. The servant is wise. That is how it starts in verse 13. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, honestly, if you remember this passage, when you think of Isaiah 53, that's not the description that you probably think of. What you probably think of is the suffering servant. Because that's what takes up the majority of the space. So it's important to remember that it starts with, this servant is going to be very, very wise and he Is going to be exalted. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be exalted on the front end of things, which is what we read about. He's not impressive. He doesn't look good. He's not even ruddy and handsome in appearance like David is described. He had no former majesty. He was despised. He was rejected among men. And yet, He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. And we embraced Him, the text says, right? No, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God in affliction, but, verse 5, He was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, this word that keeps recurring. Peace. We've all gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him, as opposed to us. I'm an Israelite reading this text. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And like we read in Micah, he opened not his mouth. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opens not his mouth. He was cut off out of the land. For the sake of the people. And yet we read in verse 10 something amazing. Because remember, this servant acted wisely. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is the Lord, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And it is out of the anguish of his soul that he shall see and be satisfied. And if you're following along in the Sunday School series, here is by far the most explicit mention of credited righteousness in the Old Testament. Imputed righteousness. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That is what is coming for the people of God. It's a startling image. There is an Israel to come. There is an Israel to come. A servant of God to come who will suffer the penalty of For the people's sins and blindness who will offer himself a guilt offering to God in order to bring peace. He's not going to be flashy. He's not going to look impressive or well regarded. But he will be what God's son, his son Israel, called out of Egypt was always supposed to be. And he'll suffer the curses that God's people brought on themselves by being covenantally unfaithful. Where they were unfaithful, he will be faithful. And he will bring about rescue and consolation by making peace in light of bearing their sins. If you're an Israelite reading this, you're thinking, I thought a king was coming. I mean, this sounds pretty miserable. I mean, maybe you're an Israelite thinking, Hey, this means that we won't have to sacrifice animals anymore. I don't know. If I was an Israelite reading it, I'm thinking, wow, I mean, we've been doing a lot of the suffering. We don't need to add one more sufferer. What's the, what exactly is going on here? Is this us that's going to be suffering? Is this someone going to be suffering on our behalf? Of course, it becomes clear in the full scope of Revelation what's going on. We hear about the suffering Messiah who is the embodiment of Israel, himself called out of Egypt after fleeing an attempt at murder. There's one coming who is going to be a representative sufferer that is going to allow us to be accounted right before God, even though we are not, in fact, not righteous ourselves. It's the third picture. One final picture for this morning. Just back up a couple chapters in Isaiah to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. As we sang in one of our songs, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. Again, like in chapter 9. We hear about a ruler that is coming. A ruler that is coming that will be a descendant of David. This ruler, though, in a different way, will have the very Spirit of God resting upon him, resulting in wisdom and knowledge and might. He will delight in God so much. He will he will know God in such a way that he will not judge. He will not make decisions and judgments. Verse three and four, like human judges do, who kind of do the very best they can. Well, here's the evidence, and here's what this person said, and here's what this person said, and I'm now I'm fallibly deciding based off the best you know evidence that I have, and I have to, I have to take into account my own blind spots and my own. Uh, Brokenness, my own sinfulness. No, that's not how he's going to decide things because that's not how he rules. Because he he knows God in a different way that allows him to judge like God. He will work perfect justice and righteousness for the poor and the disenfranchised who otherwise have no voice. It says that's what this coming king is going to do. And, importantly he will absolutely annihilate those who oppose him. As I reminded a young man within the past two weeks who was telling me he is giving up on God. That's what he said. He said, I'm just not going to follow God. I said, well, let's just be clear. Not following God means opposing God. Okay? Not following God means opposing God and standing before Him. I said, Do you want to do that? And this young man just stared at me. God will wipe out. So that language, He'll strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips, He shall kill the wicked. You know, there's no neutral like hallway to stand in or something. There's two rooms, the room folks who are following the righteous branch and those who are opposing. And the room it's, that is found opposing, so to speak, will be utterly annihilated, because, yes, he is a representative sufferer and a good shepherd and a mighty God, but he is a coming conqueror. And he will make his name great. And He will bring justice. That's the same picture we see in Malachi chapter 4 that John the Baptist so consummately absorbed. A picture of the day of the Lord. Wrath coming. This coming conqueror bringing justice. And then, silence. Silence. Silence you read Malachi chapter four and this amazing thing takes place in our Bibles that messes up the silence you know so here you are in Isaiah chapter eleven and here's what guess what happens when you turn the page there's Isaiah chapter 12 but guess what happens? when you're in a Malachi chapter four you turn the page and it says Matthew chapter one but hold on though you it creates the illusion that we've just kind of Done something not so significant. But in reality, you have hundreds of years in between Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew 1. Silence. Waiting. 10 years goes by, 25 years goes by, 50 years goes by. Where is the Lord? Maybe it'll be 70 years. We're familiar with that one from Jeremiah. Oh, seventy 70 years goes by. 100 years goes by. 200 years goes by. 300 years goes by. 400 years goes by. And still, silence. Where where is this? Our promise is true. Radio silence. In Advent... What we do is we live in between the gap of Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1. We live in the longing of promises made, but before they are kept. As a piece of application, then, before we talk about those promises kept next week, I want to answer and briefly answer, excuse me, ask and briefly answer. A great question, and that is, as a practice, why long for something that's already come? Or in other words, why Advent, exactly? It's a good question, I think. I typically don't long for things that have already happened. Three quick reasons, coming out of the whole Old Testament, but particularly from the Prophets, The first thing is that the longing of Advent focuses energetic attention on the person of Christ revealed in the New Testament. The longing of Advent focuses energetic attention on the person of Christ revealed in the New Testament. When we read the birth narrative with this sense of eager longing, we all of a sudden regain an appreciation of how personal this is. When we feel the gap after 50 years, of 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, and then we read the birth narrative, whoa! This is it! We're shocked that the One who's called to bear the Messiah is already betrothed to someone else. What? No! No! We understand why this whole thing justifies a big angelic announcement and why shepherds wanted to head out to go see. As we move along in his life, we we just grip bare knuckle when he meets Satan in the wilderness. All of heaven holds its breath and looks down and sees is the branch of David going to triumph here? The last Adam fell to food. Will this one? Could this this be the guy? The sense of longing helps us have sympathy and empathy with characters in the storyline as we read the Gospels, and it helps us feel the utter devastation of the crucifixion. After all of this, To have this man who everyone was behind. Of course, not everyone was behind him. To have that his followers and disciples were behind. What were they thinking? They didn't have any idea of a dying Messiah. That's totally (sighs) un-Jewish. After hundreds of years, we thought that was him. And then, we experienced the glory of the resurrection. An end-time event backed up into the middle of history as Jesus Christ Himself is justified by the Spirit, 1 Timothy 3.16, in the resurrection. Reliving the longing of God's people takes us past the pages of systematic theology books on the Incarnation. And it takes us into the story where it stands to affect our hearts As we listen carefully with fresh eyes and with a sense of, oh, look at this game. That's the first thing. The second, the longing of Advent cultivates thankfulness for the incarnation. As I mentioned earlier, it is almost impossible to refrain from uh, taking certain things for granted no matter how good they are, that are just regular. could be part of your job, it could be in your, with your, uh, in your marriage, it could be your kids, your church, whatever the case may be. And the same thing applies here. It seems to be just a part of human nature that even the best things we have that are kind of daily and regular can so sl- easily slip into the assumed or the just expected. I just expect my spouse to do this now. Now I feel entitled to this, actually. Perhaps worse, just forgotten. It becomes so regular. You don't even realize it. The fish who never discovered water is just not even on your radar anymore. And longing and lamenting with the prophets, like we've sought to do for a couple moments this morning, helps us feel the gravity of Christmas morning. Helps us feel the gravity of Christmas morning. We already theologically know the gravity of Christmas morning, but cultivating a sense of longing helps us feel the gravity of Christmas morning. It brings us face to face with why a weary world would bother rejoicing at a weary woman. Bearing a child in a no-name town. It brings us face to face with why a weary world would rejoice at a weary woman. Bringing a child into this world in a no-name town thousands of years ago. It increases our thankfulness. Cultivates thankfulness for the incarnation. God become flesh. And then finally, the longing of Advent is a training ground for the season of second Advent that you and I inhabit. Advent, of course, meaning coming. In the Advent season, we seek to long with the people of God for the coming of Christ. I'm happy to report, along with all of you, that Christ has come. will talk about that next week. But there is second advent. Second advent awaits us. This king will come again. Because all of the things that we read about have not all happened. The kingdom has come truly, but it has not come completely. It has come genuinely, but it hasn't come totally. In advent we say, I know the promises are true. I know He's coming. There's been radio silence for hundreds of years. But I trust that the day of the Lord, the deliverance of the righteous, I I trust that it is coming. That's what we say in the Advent season as we long. And if we annually develop this sense of longing for promises made that, that culminates in promises kept on Christmas Day when we celebrate We will be better fit to face a Wednesday afternoon where we can essentially say the same thing. I know the promises are true. I know he's coming. There's been radio silence for a couple thousand years now. I know the day of the Lord is coming. The salvation of those who love him is at hand. So help me wait. The longing of Advent is training ground for the longing of second Advent. And so, brothers and sisters, may the Lord Jesus come quickly. But may we be a people who wait and long well. Let's pray. God, as we think about the promises made and promises kept... We can do little more than express gratitude and thankfulness. Stand in awe how these promises have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus, in many cases, in just the most unlikely way to bring in a kingdom that is, after all, not of this world. And so, Lord, I pray for every person and every family represented here and those listening. That they would take focused time to try to cultivate a sense of longing. Put one more check on that calendar as we march towards Christmas and say, it's coming, it's coming. So that we would live well in this world as we await the second coming. Be gracious, Lord Jesus. Amen.